What's up guys, Jack again. Really excited to bring you this new Operation Gridbox podcast episode, Teaching Top Flight Performance. Rob Roy, amazing leader, coach, former Navy SEAL, Chief Petty Officer. He's part of SEAL Team 6 for a long time. And this is a guy that has almost four decades of being a part of high performance teams, being a part of them and or leading, coaching, teaching others on what it takes to create a high performance culture. And I got a ton of wisdom out of it. The man just drips wisdom, super smart guy, and I am really excited to bring him to you. Without further ado, Rob Roy. If there is one universal truth that binds all Navy SEALs, it's that Bud showed us we could accomplish more than we ever thought possible. We could run farther and faster than we ever imagined, lift more logs than we could ever count, endure any and every physical and mental torture the Navy could toss at us. All that was required was a belief in ourselves. That and a willing attitude, some physical output, and a few motivated, if depraved, instructors. <laughs> Ask any SEAL, and they'll tell you the same thing. The transformative moment happens in different ways at different times for different people, but eventually, we all transform. We embrace the belief that nothing is impossible if we are willing to give what it takes to make it so. While there may be apprehension, there is no fear. It involves mental, physical, and emotional release. Not everyone, however, is strong enough physically and mentally or brave enough to commit. They are unwilling to see what's possible and as a result, limit their unlimited potential. End quote. And that is a quote from the great book, The Navy SEAL Art of War, by retired Navy SEAL Chief Petty Officer Rob Roy. And I'm honored to have Mr. Roy on the podcast today. Mr. Roy, how are you doing today, sir? I am doing fantastic. I'm glad to have me, uh, that you have me on their show today, and I'm looking forward to talking it up, man. And then, and then why did you title that chapter, Come to the Edge and Fly? Because people are afraid. Uh, I think that um, we're taught in the society, you know, and, I, and this goes back eons, really, is that not everybody um, wants you to be successful and that people don't leave their villages, people don't leave their houses, people don't leave their towns for fear of the unknown. But people who do leave their towns, their cities and their neighborhoods and go on to universities and so on and so forth, they, they're out there traveling around. The Messiah have a thing, you leave the tribe become a warrior. I believe that's true in everything. Is that not everybody wants to leave the tribe and become a warrior. And in commonplace or common time is that some people won't take the leap because they're afraid of what's on the other side. Now, this, this, I'm not saying that people should go to an edge of, uh, of, a, of a bridge or go to the edge of a cliff. It's more in line of edge of where you are right now, your reality right now. Where does it end? Is it three blocks from your house? Is it five blocks from your house? Is it 10 blocks from your house? Where's that edge? When I grew up in Milwaukee, I grew up in Milwaukee, Wisconsin. I live in California now, but I've lived all over the world and no one's ever told me I can't. Well, people have said I can do, I can't do stuff all the time, but I felt I go where I need to go and I do what I need to do to be successful when I'm actually doing. So that's what that's about. It's about not letting your, your, your current reality restrict um, the possibilities that are waiting for you just on the other side. And then do you know, have you noticed in, in your, past any common themes on what why some individuals are so much more open to experiencing new things and, and new adventures and others are not 
what well, to fear, to fear the unknown. It's a fear that um, it's kind of tied to us. I mean, your friends will always, I call it the ghetto claw, that your friends, you know, they don't want you to do better than them. Right? What, does it make, what does it make, it, it's more about them than it is about you. If your friends, the more successful you become, the more your friends kind of hold you down and try to guilt you into not doing things. Let me, let me give an example. Let's use your current a football team. So practice every day, it's from 4.30 to 6, right? So the, you're the guy, you leave at 3.30, you go get ready for football, you get your gear ready to go. You know the coach wants you there at 3.45, but everybody's telling you, man, why are you doing that? Why are you putting all that effort? You're never going to play in the NFL. Well, how do they know? How do they know that, that it's not about the NFL, it's about getting a, a college um, scholarship or, or, or just about the grit of the team that you're a part of or it's about you know, the, the brotherhood that you get when you're out there, the feeling you get, the, the, the endorphins that are kicked into your system that makes you feel better who you are physically, mentally, and emotionally. That's what it's about. Football is not just about winning the games. I mean, that's always good. But it's about all the other things you get from it. It's about being able to, to give and sacrifice for other members of your team. And I, I think a lot of people are afraid of that. And so what they do is they hold you back. They hold you back emotionally. They hold you back, not physically holding you, uh, wrapping their arms around you, but they guilt you into not doing it because it, it makes them look bad. Because why can't I do it? You know, they don't have it. Whether they were not born with it or they weren't raised with it, but only a few people in this world are ever going to go out and do the things that are impossible. That's why we climb, climb Mount Everest, why we go to the moon, you know, why we're trying to go to Mars. It's because only a few people can do it. And it inspires the rest of us. Those of us that can can do those things should inspire the rest of us by giving back to our communities. And then what does that process look like of you're getting taped, you're getting ready to go to practice early because you want to set a tone and then you have teammates telling you, oh, why are you doing that, bringing you back? What is the process you feel needs to happen for for you to give in to them and say, you're right, I don't, to get to a point where I'm on a mission here, I don't don't care what these guys say. Well, you know, that's, that's a funny thing. And I, I, I kind of deal with the, the, a lot of kids now, and I try to tell them that, look, you can't see the future. That's not, it's impossible. It's gonna, you know, people say, well, in 10 years from now, what's going to happen? Well, you know, 10 years, I can't, I can't put that in the context. I can barely put next month in the context. Your behavior, your, your scheduling, or, your, or, or your, uh, what you do every day, your routine allows you to project out to the future what it could be. Now, here's, here's a catch. If, if these kids are telling themselves or questioning themselves why they're getting up early and then unless they make it to the NFL or they make it to some, you know, become a businessman and be an extremely successful, the question is to ask yourself, at my 50 years old or 40 years old, what would I tell my 18 or 17, 18-year-old self, right? Because that, that gives you a window into what your future could be. Is it going to be not going to practice? I'm, I'm pretty sure it's not going to be not going to practice. I'm going to be sure it's not going to be having a routine. Of what would I tell myself? You probably tell yourself to do what you need to do to be successful. Now, here's another thing. They say, well, that's too much time, 50 years old. Okay, then you're 18 years old now or 17 years old now. What would you tell your 10-year-old self that you wish you had done at your 18-year-old self? And then their mind should blow and say, I wish I had done this. You know, kids, people always say, I wish I had done this better. I wish I'd have done that. I wish I would have studied more. I wish I'd have ran more. I wish I'd have ran when it rained outside. I wish I would have ran when it was cold outside. I wish I'd have done more reps in the gym. Well, if you don't do that stuff now and you want to project out to the future, you can't do it because when you look back from the future into the past, you didn't do the things it would take in order for you to be successful. 
So I would tell any 18-year-old kid or 17-year-old kid, a kid playing right now, what would you tell yourself five years ago? And that should be your mantra. If you don't have a mantra like the SEALs have, the only each day was yesterday, evaluate, plan, execute. What you, don't let your minimums be your maximum. Every time you fail is a, is a casting call to be successful and so on and so on. You need to have those things because those are the blankets that keep us warm when we're standing out in the cold. And then I haven't heard that one before. What does that mean? Every time you fail is a casting call to be successful. Because it's greatness. So you learn from you. You're going to learn more from losing than you will from winning. Winning's great, but now you're on top. But it's that self-deprecation, that that humbleness that comes from losing. To be a gracious winner, to train the next day, like whatever you did today doesn't matter. And I'll tell you the big thing about the SEAL teams is that we win a lot. We win in combat a lot, but we also lose. But we don't learn anything when we win. We learn when we lose. I'm not saying we should lose every battle. But winning is breeds overconfidence. It doesn't. It, it breeds content for your for your your enemies. So when you win a game, you should go back and go, what do we do? What do we do right? And what do we do wrong? We're going to focus on the things we did wrong. We know what we did right. But what do we did? What do we? What do we? Each one of us do wrong in order for us to be successful. And I, I try to tell kids like I'm not telling you to to hate on yourselves. That's not what it's about. It's about figuring out the, the communication in the huddle. How many, how many times do we got on the ball faster? For my guys for training, it's like, did I show up on time? I knew there was traffic. They got to meet me. They usually have to meet me out somewhere to, to train. But it's all the things that, that, that are in line before you start your training, your training day, before you start your school day, before you start your morning. What are you doing to make sure that happens? Now, here's, here's an example. I have a sunny 16-year-old. 16-year-old, he plays, uh, plays water polo. Mm. And I tell them, you have more time to get everything ready in the evening than you do in the morning. He goes, I don't get that. It takes five minutes for me to put my shoes on and get ready to go and my clothes are laid out. I go, you won't find your shoes in the morning. You won't know your belt or pants in the morning. You won't know where your swimsuit is in the morning, your towel, and all the other things. Your mind is freer when you don't have stress to be prepared than when you do have stress to be prepared. The only thing you can do when you're stressed or under a, uh, uh, in a fearful situation is do what you've already trained to do, which is what we all do. Like you're only going to do what you're going to do. So I always tell them, like, example, your football team guys. It's like, hey, you need to prep the day before in order to be ready for the next day. So when it comes time, all you have to do is grab your gear. If you're looking around for your jock strap and your your, your cool socks you want to wear, and you know your, your laces aren't tied right, and that stuff should have been taken care of the day before, and that breeds success to be ready for that next event for that next day. That's what we do when we come back. You, you debrief and you get ready for the next day. So when you leave the locker room in the evening, the day before, you're ready to go the next day when you come in there. And if you can maintain that kind of discipline, you'll be extremely successful because you're always going to look for what's next. And, and nothing ever happens the way you want it to. So you're tying yourself up by not prepping yourself for the day before. Hmm. Before we go too deep here, I would love to hear what life was like for you growing up in Milwaukee. You tell a story about your your mother in the book, which is one of the, well, I found one of the most inspiring stories in the book. Could you talk a little bit life growing up in, in Milwaukee and uh, maybe even go into that story a little bit? Yeah. Um, I think that uh, a lot of people have the impression that I, I grew up in a really nice neighborhood and, you know, I did go to suburban schools, but I lived in the, I lived in the hood. And, and when you're growing up in the hood, you don't know anything other than what you know. I never dreamed that, uh, I would ever get out of there because I was living day to day, you know, surviving. And when you survive, you live day to day, hour to hour, minute to minute. You never look at what's going to happen tomorrow. 
I was fortunate enough to, to um, I guess, smart enough to, to be uh, transferred to a, a suburban school back in the 80s. And segregation was kind of just taking the uh, oh, 70s, actually 76. Segregation was just starting to, uh, you know, it was a forefront of society. We we're making a big changes back then. And uh, I was fortunate enough to go to, a, you know, a school in the suburbs. But I still lived in the city. Everything I did was in the city. I was still a city person. I wasn't a, a hood rat, but the the change, the adaption, I guess it would be from me going to that school, which is about 35, 40 minutes away every day by bus, and then coming home, and then being able to being able to transition from the school I went to to the neighborhood I grew up in was tasking. Um, I learned a lot from it. I learned that. And this is going to come off weird, but I learned that it's culture, not color, that mm. determines what you can do if you put yourself in the right culture. Because again, I was, you know, a black kid growing up in Milwaukee, and in, in, in probably the, you know, the welfare and you know slum lords, and nobody had cars and drugs and you know all sorts of things. You're robbing, getting robbed more than the block away from my house, and and then going out to suburban schools and learning that you know life is not that bad. Your life is what you make. Your life is the, the reality that you live in. And I live, basically live in two different rea- realities. I think that um, that was a challenge for me. And I don't wish it on anybody, really, because it was, it was, it was a lot of work. Um, but, I didn't, you know, when you're, you're six, 15, 16 years old, you don't look at, you know, where you're going to end up as a freshman or sophomore or senior. You're just trying to do what you can do to get, uh, to get ahead. My mother was instrumental in that because uh, – she never said you need to make it out of Milwaukee. She just said you had to, you need to finish school. That's her whole thing was you need to finish school so you have opportunities. Years later, after my mother passed in uh, 2007, yeah, 2007, I was, um, you know, you, you find out a lot about your parents. And I, and I write about some of it in the book, but I, I didn't know my mom had a sixth grade education. I didn't know my dad had a sixth grade education. And then they put a lot of emphasis on, on, um, on education. And I was surprised that they were able, you know, based on today's society, how much they were able to function with that. But also how, how trying it must have been for them as I look back it, and how difficult it, it must be, must have been for them. Um, and my dad's still alive. And my, my dad's not, he doesn't read well. He, he's never read my book. He, yeah, and that sounds crazy, but he can't read my book. He doesn't read that well. But he still functions and he's, he's still a good man. But what he gave to me was that work ethic of, you know, you're, you're responsible for what happens to you. No one else is. You, you make your own roads. You know, you do what you have to do to survive. That's what my dad said to me. My mom as well is that you need to be able to survive. And I never, in, in their, in their reality, life was about survival. And then why, why I learned when I was out of school was, you know, life is, life is about choices. And if you can get a kid, to understand that life is about choices and not about survival, then he can see his future. If he can see his future, damn, he can make all kinds of choices, you know, and, and if he decides that's where you want to go to. But, you know, I tell you, and this is the line what I said earlier, is that the ghetto claw works against you as well. It, there's, there's people in your neighborhood are going to pull you back because they don't want to see you become successful. They don't want to see you come back in five years with your college degree and you know, you're making all kind of money unless they're getting a little of that money too. Cause it's about, you know, a lot of it's about the hustle as well. And then you feel guilty. You see all these uh, NFL guys that are, you know, taking care of people in their neighborhood that supported them the whole way. But to what end, 
you, you, you can't plan on riding somebody else's coattails all your life. I mean, sorry, I got off track a little bit, but the challenges when you're 14, 15 years old um, are immense and you can't see your future, but everybody's telling you, you have a future. No different when I was and back in 1976 and no different in 2018. It won't be any different than 2020. A young child will feel the weight of his age if he's not properly prepared. I mean, physically, mentally, and emotionally. And I, and I believe that sports gives them, a, not a watershed, but a haven to understand what they can do from being a freshman through all the way up to seniors. Um, it gives you a direction. Uh, of some control of what you can do in sports. Um, I played sports in high school, uh, and, I, and I didn't get good until I was a senior. But um, getting back to Milwaukee. Well, so just uh, real quick, real quick. So uh, yeah. a lot of the guys, like, it's coach, you could, you could absolutely tell they're in survival mode. Could you elaborate a little bit more when what you mean when you say life is, life is not about survival, it's about choices? Yeah, so... so in most, in most, uh, in most neighborhoods, you're talking about um, survival mode is being able to you, you, whatever is yours is yours, mm-hmm. and and it's a it's a mindset. It's not, it's not the warrior mindset, the survival mindset that every time you walk out your door, you're you're worried about somebody shooting you, stabbing you, robbing you, you know, calling you names, worried about your reputation, and you just need to make it to the corner, and so your heart's racing, your pumps are. You may on the outside, you're this cool lava flow. On the inside, you're this earthquake, this tsunami of emotions and uh, uh, anxiety, and you learn how to handle it, right? And, and, it, and it can help you. It can help you in the future, but right now, it doesn't help you move ahead because everything is about surviving. And when you survive, there's 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 we need shelter, we need food, we need warmth, and we need water. And in, in the hood, you still need the same things when you're trying to survive, right? We're, we're not talking about future. When you're when you're trying to survive, when you're trying to survive, it's all about those four things you're trying to get, and and then being cool would be on top of that because you want to be cool, you want to have the the latest you know Nikes and whatever else. There's like some other societal things that are that tie into that. But when you're when you get to a point where you can relax and the resilience is down and you're not in stress, you have the anxiety about not being able to survive, then you can make choices. You can make choices about what you watch on TV, the cable cable channels, what cell phone package you got. You make choices about what car you're going to get when you're 18 years old, the insurance you have to pay, and the car note you're going to pay, and then going down to the DMV. You can make choices about whether you drive now or five months from now. You can make choices where you're going to take an Uber or go out to eat or go to a restaurant. You're not hustling to try to make all that stuff happen. You're making plans. And I would say that's the thing is that if you're a survivor, you're not making plans because there are no plans to make. You can only make plans if you have a future. And you can only make make those kind of plans if you're living a life and making choices. So I say the biggest thing is that if you're, if you're surviving, you're not making any plans because you don't have a future, but to make plans, you got to have a future. You got to not live. You got to live a life where you're making choices and, and choices. Then I get into what options are and you can't make, you can't have people give you options because options are what people give you. Choices are what you make hmm. and choices are based on your skill sets you know, your education background. Like if I'm a, I'm a kid and I got a 3.2 average and, uh, you know, I'm part, you're, you're, you're number one guy in, in football and I run fast and I'm athletic and I'm six foot two. Okay. I got choices. I have choices. I can go in the military. I can go to a university that the recruiters are coming after me. 
But if I'm just some knucklehead that's not a, you know, I'm kind of good. I come to practice every now and then. I don't have any choices. You know, somebody may option me to go to the military. There's nothing wrong with the military I served. But you don't, you don't have a lot of options. We say, we're going to give you this and that's it. You're going to pay for your school. It'll cost you $45,000. And you have the option. If you don't, if you don't, if you don't uh, make it, then you're going to owe us, you know, $100,000. You don't want that. You want, you want to be able to, your choices. I'm, I got this school recruiting me. I got that school recruiting me. I got that school recruiting me. Because if you're coming from the hood, your, your parents aren't paying for your college. They're not saving for your college fund because they're surviving. They're trying to feed the family every day. And I, I completely understand that. And it's not a derogatory thing at all. It's more in line with this is what, how we live. And we acknowledge how we live. And we want to get out of that. Well, we get out of that by seeing our future. And people don't want you to see the future. People don't want you to go to the edge because it, it affects their ability. It affects, it affects them more than it affects you. And you can't look back. You can't look back and go, well, what about my buddy? Let me tell you a quick story about when I was with SEAL teams. When I was in Spain, I decided to go to SEAL teams, and everybody told me I couldn't make it. I had a friend of mine that trained with me uh, 24-7. I told him I was putting in my package to go to the SEAL teams, and I thought it was something I wanted to do because I wanted to do something different. I put my package in, which is a basically, you know, your physical fitness, your education, and your commitment to serve. I put it in, and then uh, I, I got my orders, which says, hey, you're going to leave three months from now. You're going to become not become a SEAL, but you're going to get an opportunity to go. My buddy walks up to me and goes, I cannot believe you betrayed me. And I'm like, what are you talking about? He goes, you betrayed me. And I'm like, what do you, I don't understand what, what, what happened. Did I, what did I do wrong? He goes, you put your package in without me. And I'm thinking to myself, I put my package in for me, right? You, you, you trained with me. We talked about this, right? I'm, I wasn't going to Bud's because of him. And I wasn't going to Bud's, which is basically underwater demolition field training. I was going because I was going. He just happened to be wanting to go the same time I was going. And I think a lot of people. A lot of a lot of kids, especially young kids in the hood, is that their friends aren't going, so they don't want to go. And then the friends make them feel guilty. You're not going to know anybody there. You know what? Your life is not about the people that you're not going to meet. Your life is about the things you're going to do. You're going to meet people. We're 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 conversational people. You just have to drop some of your outer shell. A lot of people think. A lot of kids will say, "Well, I'm not going to be the guy I was when I was growing up." You can't be the guy you were when you were growing up. Society won't let you be that person. You make enough money, you can. But do you really want to be the guy that's the same kid that was in high school going to a college and then trying to bring your 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 tribalism to to the college and expecting people to accept you for who you are? Because that's not how it works. If you want to be if you want to be accepted, you're going to have to make some adjustments to who you are as a person in order for you to have more choices. If you want people to give you options, keep doing what you're doing. But in order for you to have all these other opportunities that are available to you, you're going to have to open up who you are as an individual so you have choice. And, and it's all about choice. Because then you, once you make the decision, then all the accolades, all the, the profits, and all the things that are coming to you will come to you. If you're 16 and what you're saying is the more time I spend building skills now, the more discipline I apply now, the more choices I will have moving forward. Yeah. How would you teach that to a 16-year-old who is in, who is, I, want, I don't even want to say mindset, but he's, he's, he's living in a, a survival world. You have to do what I did with my son as you take him to places where he sees where the other people live. Mm. 
you you got to take him to, you know, my son when he was, um, I think he was four, you know, 12, and then uh, we went to, um, I took him up to Loyola. I was speaking at Loyola High School, uh, College. I took him up there with me, and he goes, he goes, what what is this place? And I said, it's a university because you're kidding. I go, no, it's a, it's a place where people go to school. He goes, I didn't know school could be like this. And I said, yeah. I said, if you go to the right school, it could be like this, <laughs> you know, where people are nice and everything's co- you know quiet. You're not living, worried about surviving. You're, you're making choices. I said, yeah, it's, it could be really good. But this is one of thousands of schools, I told him. I said, it depends on what you want to do with your life. He goes, I get a chance to choose. And I go, yeah, you get a chance to choose. You know, I, I, I worked all my life in order for you to have an opportunity to choose. So, you know, I still write him on things right now. And he says to me, um, he's, a, he's a pretty good water polo player, but he says to me the other day, he says, you know, Dad, I'm not going to play water polo in college. I go, why is that? He goes, I want to study. I want to be an engineer. And I think it takes away from me being an engineer. I said, but I want you to play sports. He goes, I can play sports. I'm just not going to try to go to college. There's other guys who want to go. They can go. But my goal is to become an engineer. And I'm like, I, you know, I'm thinking to myself, I can't argue with him because you know, he's thinking about his education, he's thinking about his future and he wants to go to, you know, several different schools. He wants to go visit them. I think a 16 year old kid needs to understand that. And here's the, here's the key for that. He has to understand that at the level that he understands it. So you take a kid that's from the hood and you take him to like UCLA, he might like parts of it, but not all of it. So it's, it's, it's easing that, in, that kid into that environment. You have to ease him into the environment because sometimes it's too much of a shock. Mm. Um, I got I got a kid of mine that not a kid, but this is an older guy I work with. He's probably twenty twenty eight now. Was a uh, drafted out of a, one of the Texas high schools, and I, I know him now because he plays semi pro ball. And I was talking to him one day, and I said, "Man, you're, you're I can't believe how fast you are. You're, so, you're you're big, and you're you're like I can't believe how fast you. Why are you in the Navy?" He says, "And um, you know, I just like being." I just like doing the same job all the time. I don't like a lot of change. I go, I can't understand, but did you play football in high school? He said, yeah, I played football in high school. I said, you, I could be to get a scholarship because I did. Like, you're kidding. He goes, yeah, I got a scholarship. I went to Oklahoma, a big school. And he goes, uh, I was a starter. I didn't get registered. I was like, wow, what, what, what happened? He goes, uh, I couldn't stand being away from home. Mm. And he just like, you've got to be kidding me. He goes, no, man, I knew I grew up in my neighborhood. And then I went up there and I just, you know, I just, I got in a lot of trouble because I wanted to go back home. I didn't want to quit. I said, so your behavior, and this is the thing. So your behavior, the choices you made, made them kick you off the team so you can go back home. He goes, as I look back now, yeah. He goes, he goes I didn't need the stuff that I was doing. I didn't, I, they provided everything for me, but I didn't know how to handle it. I felt, I felt guilty. And I, I was like, that's it. You felt, you felt guilty because you're leaving everybody behind. And you didn't know where you were going to be. He's like, you lose part of yourself. I said, that's, that's kind of weird. And I said, well, did anybody help me? He goes, yeah, I just, he goes, I just got homesick. And I wanted to be back home. So this behavior, his acting out, as they call it, was designed to, to, to get him off the team. But he wouldn't quit. You know, he's a hardcore kid. He wouldn't quit. I said, well, I said, but you're, but you're maybe living in California now. And he goes, yeah. He goes, choices, right? And I go, yeah, <laughs> choices. If you were in a position where you saw him at 19 and yeah. he was acting out and you could tell or, or just your intuition or you had an understanding that the reason he was acting out was because he was homesick or he wanted to go home. What would you communicate to him to try and get him to stay? Well, or here's why? Thing. 
You know, you really got to do psychology on it. You got to sit down and here's the thing about coaches do a great job of motivating the kids. But sometimes we, we as mentors, we kind of miss out on the reason why they're having the issues. And a lot of times it's a young man never had a father figure. And so you as a coach become the father figure to that young man. But they haven't had a father figure that holds them to a standard. You know, you know, the in my sense, kids are not all kids, but a lot of kids are having, you know, they have bad parents. And so the kids are, that's how the kids grew up without, without a good, good foundation, good structure. Because you can live in the hood and have great parents. But if you don't, you're going to make a lot of mistakes. Um, because no one's there to teach you. There's no one that educates you on the choices that you're going to make. And I don't mean that every 16-year-old kid listens to everything you say. They don't. You know, what you want to try to do is you want to seed the information as an acorn that you plant that grows into a, uh, an oak tree, is that you want to seed the information to that kid so when he comes to a point in his life and he needs to make a choice or a decision, then they hear your voice, and it moves them to the right direction. A 19-year-old kid that you know that's having some issues, that's having some problems, you're going to have to sit down with them and let them talk it out to you. We, we tend to want to just like jump in there and give them a solution to their problem, but you, you got to hear them out. Once you filter through all the, the, the crap, right? You know, once you get through all that stuff, then it's like this letter, let it out. The other part of it is, it's how you listen to them. It's face to face. Everybody, you know, it's, 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 you know, it's all like, well, talk to me, man to man, face to face. Tell me what's going on. And then they are reading at a subconscious level, your facial expressions for approval or disapproval. The hardest thing for us not to do is like, I can't believe this kid's wasting this, wasting his life with this crap. You know, everything's offered to him. And that's, that's not what he's looking for. He's going to start telling you what you want to hear. And he's still going to, he's going to be having more doubt. And you know, when you create doubt, it's a dragon under the carpet that eventually is going to come back and bite you because that, that, that doubt or seeds for him to, to leave. So I think that the best approach is like when I take kids to dinner, I'll talk to them and I'll kind of talk. I won't look at them. I'll just kind of talk to them, eat my food and, and then I'll ask questions and, you know, I'll talk to them because I want them to just, I want them to free flow what's going on so I can get an idea where their head's at. And then I'll figure out some things to do with them. The, 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 the best thing to do is have somebody who can mentor them that's around their age and they can kind of walk them through this stuff. And then here's the thing, have them mentor somebody else mm. that they feel responsible to. Like if you got an 18 year old, 19 year old kid and, and, and he's kind of got it on right, then you know where he was at 16. And then he sees another kid there at 16 and he'll find himself saying the things that he heard you say, but just never acknowledged. And that's when you know you got the circuit running. That's when you know you have the power of influence or the sphere of influence for these kids because they're all not repeating what you say, but they believe that they can do better. They believe that they're going to get out of there. They believe that they, there's, there's hope for them. And that's the, that's the guy. That's, that's the true belief of it is to get them to, to see that there's other opportunities out there. If you can, I, I'm not sure where you guys read, but if you can, not even, I wouldn't go to a better high school. Right? I wouldn't say, hey, let me take you to a better high school because that's like, you know, kind of kicking mud in their face. But they have the opportunity to go to a university or a local college. Um, and, it's good. and I'm not even, I'm not kicking, you know, uh, uh, what do you call those, uh, junior colleges either because that's sometimes, you know, education-wise, that's a stepping stone as well. I think it's just an opportunity without their friends to kind of walk around and see how things can be better for them. This can all be there. There's nothing that says it can't be, you know. And what holds them back is themselves. And, and I think it's our job as coaches and mentors is to 
to open their eyes to what the possibilities are for them so they can make the right choice and get away from the surviving day to day. And I, I, I by no means saying it's easy. It's, it is difficult. It takes a hard soul to do it, and, but they got to see it. They got to, they got to go through the crap of walking through the neighborhoods when people are giving them crap about, you know, the uniform they wear, or the shoes they wear, or, you know, you think you're going to be in the NFL, or you think you're going to play, you, you know, all that. They, they're going to get through all that stuff. And people are like, you should owe me because I drive you every day. And, you know, they don't, you don't want them like that. It, it, it creates too much of an emotional um, barrier for them to be more successful when they feel like they owe everybody. And why do I want to be successful? We're going to owe everybody. So good. And then why did you decide to join the Navy? Oddly enough, when I was probably 13 years old, uh, and, you know, I, this is the day before the internet. This is the day before computers. We had three channels on TV. And uh, I saw um, movies that showed that the Navy life was good. They traveled. They, they did all kinds of things, the structure, the, the joking, the fun stuff they did. You know, back in the 80s, 70s, there wasn't a lot of um, violence as it is now on television. That, you know, there's all this emotional stuff. There's all good stuff. My heroes were, you know, comic book heroes. You know, they, they always saw good and justice, and I wanted to serve. I wanted to be like that as, as much as I could. I mean, and I don't mean like I, was, I wanted to fly and, you know, put on a Batman suit or anything like that. It was just kind of the moral the moral compass that they provided that, that I didn't have growing up. And I de- definitely didn't see it in my neighborhood. I just wanted to do something different. And the Navy was an opportunity for me to do that. And I, I don't remember, I remember what movie I saw. I didn't want to do Bob Hope movie, actually. I saw it and I thought, those are cool uniforms. And where do they go? They travel all over and they show the Navy and the guys were joking around. And, you know, they it, it just seemed like a lot more funner than, you know, say the Marine Corps during the time frame and in the Army. Um, and then I didn't know anything about the Air Force when I was 13. So I signed up, started seeing recruiters three years later when I was 16 years old. Uh, I, I came out of high school already in the Navy. Uh, I signed up my senior year. And oddly enough, here's a funny story. I was small. I was 167 pounds. I played football. I wrestled. I did gymnastics. Well, I didn't do gymnastics. Uh, I was on the team. <laughs> but, you know, one of those things stay busy. Um, so I did that and I, I kind of wanted to become an architect. So I took, um, I took classes, drafting classes in high school, but, um, my last year in high school, I kind of came into my own, you know, stronger, faster. And I played football and my senior year, the coach came up to me and said, Hey, I'm super glad you're going to be here next year. I said, Oh no, no, no coach. And this is why I had already signed up in the Navy. He said, you're going to be one of my star players next year. I said, Oh no coach, I'm going to be in the Navy next year. Like, what? I thought you were like a junior. Like, no, no, I'm a senior. So most of my classes I had in sports, I was in track for the pole ball. They're like, hey, are you going to be here next year? Like, no, no, I graduate. And I thought to myself, if I hadn't made the choice so soon, what ha- I had grown as much as I did in those last years. You know what I mean? It's like once the choice was made that I was going to the Navy, everything, every, my, you know, my grades went up and I was trying hard and I was coming, you know, becoming more of an athlete because I was going to the Navy. Whereas if I didn't know where I was going, I don't think I would have been that much of a prize to, to the, you know, the football team or the track team or the wrestling or anything like that. I think that I was, I think because I, I made a choice earlier on that I was able to, to be more um, aggressive. Like, like I knew where I was going. I think what indecision gives us is it gives you, you, you don't make any choices because, you know, you don't know what you're going to do. I think a young man that decides they want, they, they want to go to college 
and they they're a good a good football player should focus on going to college and becoming a good football player, but you're going to get your scholarship by becoming a great football player. So your grades have to be good, but you're going to be great. You have to put every, you got to put a hundred percent of your effort into becoming a great player. You know, the 90 something thousand colleges, I think it's 90 something thousand players, not colleges that are out there. You could be one of those people. And from there you can go on and do other things, but those things are going to open up the, the pathways for other opportunities for you to become an engineer, become an accountant, become a lawyer, become a businessman. Uh, to be an entrepreneur, uh, the, the whole host of other things. I think that sports are a gateway to not just be, to become rich. I know a lot of people think that, but a gateway to having a future. I think that's what sports do, does for you. Yeah, it sounds like you had a target that you were going after, and that target was was dictating your actions. Yeah, yeah but you know what? Uh, here's the other thing. I didn't, I didn't go to the SEAL teams right away. I was in the Navy for almost six years before I, I found out about the SEAL teams. And um, I was actually in school going to college and I was going to get out uh, the Navy to go, you know, to walk on to University of Maryland. That's where, I, that's what I was, I was playing football over in Spain. And uh, they're like, you should be playing college ball. And I was like, yeah, well, that's not my goal. I want to be, a, you know, it's like, I'm going to be, I'm a writer. And they're like, what? <laughs> I was like 240, 246 uh, foot tall. And they're like, you want to become a writer? You're freaking, you're, you're running a thousand yards and doing the season. And you want to become a writer as a running back. And I'm like, what? Yeah. I want to become a writer. And they're like, yeah. And they, oh, oh, okay. People were like, oh, yeah, okay, weirdo. <laughs> but you, you know, I thought that, uh, I thought, well, yeah, I do that. And I met a guy that said, hey, this is the first time in my life someone ever said to me, you know, you should become a Navy SEAL. That's, that's actually why I went to the SEAL teams. Some guy said, hey, I think you can become a Navy SEAL. You look like you're, he goes, you're a nice guy and you, you're pretty athletic and I think you'd be a good SEAL. That's what he said to me. A guy named Clark Cummins. And then before you were even in the SEAL teams, what kind of training were you doing from getting what you weighed in oh, wow. senior year in high school to yeah. when you were crushing yeah. it in the Navy? I was, I was, I was 160. I remember telling people this all the time. I was 167 pounds the day I graduated. And the day I joined the Navy, I was 167. Well, when I actually went active duty, I was 167. And then I was five foot seven, right? I was five foot, five foot tall, seven inches. Uh, when I joined the Navy, I was shorter than all my friends. I was gone for three and a half years. I came back. I was 240 pounds. I was six foot tall. <laughs> People were like, what the hell did they feed you? Because I was kind of a vegetarian when I was growing up, mm-hmm. you know, like not by choice, but uh, I, I gained like you know, I gained nearly uh, five inches and, you know, like you know, 25, 30, you know, 40 pounds, 45 pounds. Uh, when I went to bud strain, I was 245. And then I, the lightest I was at Buds was 197. And then I'm, you know, right now I sit about 260. Yeah, man, it was, it was, um, what did I do? I, I played football in a, in a winter. And then in the summer, the, the winter, spring, um, and summer, I, uh, I was a triathlete. Mm. Uh, Cause I, I like, I, you know, I picked up riding bikes and I picked up swimming. I like to swim. And then I added running to it. So when I took my test to become a SEAL, uh, the first time I took it, I was, uh, my mile, my one mile time was 7.15. And then I did 100 push-ups, 100 sit-ups, um, something like 12 pull-ups. And I swam the 500 meters. And um, I think it was uh, 9, 9.40 or something like that. And then I kept getting tested. I realized, hey, I need to be faster. So I, I, when I left to go to Bud Strain, I was running, I was, uh, my, my run times were around 6.40. I figured I had I need to get faster. I thought I can get faster. I need to be faster. But I had never I had never knew anything about the SEAL teams. 
So I didn't know how far they ran or anything. So when I got the buds, my first, I had to run like three miles. That seemed like a long distance. You know, that was my longest run. Maybe four with the buds. I got there and the first run was five and a half miles. I nearly died. Mm-hmm. I was, it was in soft sand boots and long pants. I was like, oh my God, what the hell did I do? And then the instructor started yelling at me going, hey, I can't, what the, you're, you're a piece of crap. Blah, blah, blah. And more, more, more descriptive words. Uh, I, what the hell are you doing here? You can't run. I, I, I ran three miles. <laughs> yes, how, many, how many miles a week you run before you got here? Uh, three miles every other day. What? You know, they do like, what is it? 36 miles going to chow. Every <laughs> week I was running nine miles a week. Yeah, man, it was a, it was a it was a eye opener, but I made it. I I made it through in six months. I was part of a Nobel Hellway class. It meant that everybody that went to my class. We made it. It was uh, twenty eight of us. Um, started with one hundred seventeen, graduated um, twenty eight guys. It was it was great. It was probably the best experience of my life. I learned a lot. And then a lot of guys, a lot of guys growing up in the the inner city have a very adverse view of the military as an option and i would love to get your take on that as a, as a man of color what, what would you say as someone who wow that is a great question and i always bring it back so i'm writing a new book called you know it's color it's a culture not color and i've been looking into this a lot because i train a lot of kids and i always tell them that it's um people think that is a, a lot of racism that um when you go into the navy and and i always say that man you're going to run into the same people you run into your, into your hood in the Navy. You just can't let that hold you back. I mean, if you're black, you're black every day. It, 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 it doesn't change who you are. What is it that you bring your neighborhood with you? Because the organization you're going into is not your hood. And that's where the, the rub comes from, is when you try to change the, you know, I, I'm so comfortable with things being this way, then I'm going to bring that kind of lifestyle to 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 the navy or to my work center or to my department and then people in your department are like hey that's not what we're used to we're not we're not used to that kind of survival mode we're we're like i'm thinking about you know four o'clock and i'm going to plan for my kids college and do these are life-changing modes you can't bring that with you that's why i say you got to leave it behind you when you go i think it's the best opportunity for men of color for actually for anybody that wants to join the military but it's the same thing as being in high school, the same thing as going to college is you got to look beyond where you're at and you look at where you want to go. So when you talk to yourself 10 years from now, you look back and go, I'm glad I made those decisions and not when I wish I had, you know, people go, I wish I'd done that. Oh, I wish I'd done that. They tell themselves all the time. I wish, oh, I wish I, if I'd have done things differently. Well, yeah, well, today is the day. Do things differently. You can't keep saying, I wish I'd done things differently. You know, the People go, do you live your life with regret? And regret? No, I do everything I want to do. I don't hold back. I mean, there's a couple of things here and there that I, I wish I had done better, but it's because of that's my own, you know, it's my own standards as opposed to, I wish I had done that. I do it. I do everything I want to do. I do everything I think I can do. I, I push the envelope. I don't do anything that I don't want to do, though. I've never talked into something by somebody else. And it takes a lot to be honest, trustworthy, and void of, of deceit. You know, there's some a hidden, a hidden meaning or a hidden message behind everything you do. I, uh, I try not to do that. I try to be as honest with people as I possibly can. I try to be, um, um, helpful when I can. And I try to give, right. And so, so people know that, you know, there's an expectation when you talk to me, there's an expectation when you're around me that I'm going to push you, not physically push you, but I'm going to push you to your limits. And my, you know, my son and my daughter are the same way. I'm like, Hey, you know, I'm your dad, but Hey, I still got to hold the standard. You know, I'm not, I'm not your mother. I'm not, uh, 
I'm not the nurturer, right? I'm the natural person that's going to push you to be the warrior that you can be. That's my job is to make sure you're ready, right? It's not my job to educate you. It's to make sure you're ready for society, ready for life. And I don't want you to hold back on anything. I don't want you ever to look back and go, I wish I had done that. Right? You make a decision, you stick with it, you, you, you make some adjustments, but at the end of the day, you want to be a man or a woman that stands there and go, I've done everything I should, I should have done in my life. I don't regret anything. And then keeping with this theme of culture, what, yeah. what are some of the things that the Navy SEAL culture, what are some of the things that they do to, that create such a, a high-performance culture for, for gentlemen like yourself who, who were within that? Oh, um, you know, uh, I've given that a lot of thought over the years, too. And, and kind of the, the corporate training events I do with people, I, I kind of do that with them. And I say that, you know, you need something visceral that you can taste that's palatable to the people because we don't change unless there's a crisis, right? You have a death in the family. You have a, a, your life, a near, a near death experience. Uh, you get married, you get divorced, you have children. Those are, those are major, major things in your life that make you want to change, right? We can't do it with dieting. We can't do it with exercise. We can never do it by ourselves. What BUDS does or SEAL training does, you get there. Yeah, they yell at you and they make you run, but that's not what does it. What does it is hell week. Hell week when you have that five days when you're awake and you're with your brothers there and you're like, you're in it and you're surviving. You're competing against the, not the men, but the instructors. And they want to break your will and they want to break your soul. And you see people leaving. You see people that are, that you thought were better than you. You see people that leave the program that you thought were, had it all. You know, they had the money, they had the family, they had the background, they had the name, you know, and you're sitting there cold and wet with, with this other guy who you thought would never make it. And he's cold and wet. And you're looking at each other eye to eye and you're going, hey man. He's like, hey man. And you know that that's, that's for the rest of your life, that's going to be somebody that's with you. That, that's going to be there thick and thin. Because you're there because, because of your brotherhood. And I, I don't want to overuse that word. But then when you get done with the program, you go to bed, you wake up on Sunday morning, Saturday, Saturday you get done, you sleep Saturday, and then Sunday you're, you're up and around. You look at each other, you go, hey, we just, we just finished Hell Week. That's five days of getting our butts kicked. They, and that builds that bond. From that moment forward, every SEAL that's graduated, 50 years, have all done the exact same thing. And you know, from the 117 people that started your class, down to the 28 people that made it the Hell Week, that that's something special. I think when uh, any team that does like a Hell Week or, or a transition that pushes people beyond their limits without thinking they're going to lose people, because the programs aren't really set up to lose the buds is, but most programs that are out there to train people, they're not set to lose people. They're up to see what you're made out of, to see that when your brothers are looking at you and your sisters are looking at you, that you're never going to give up, that you're in it for the long haul, that you're only thinking about what's best for the team right now. And then when you have that, then you build your value system on there about your trust and being honest. And then that you, you're, 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 you want to be candid and have candor with people because they, they, they say, hey, you know, you tell somebody he's screwed up. It's like, well, he must be screwed up if you told them that. You know, and he got, and that guy should take it on board and go, yeah, right. You're right. I'm, I, I screwed that up. You need to be able to say those things without people getting personal. I can't believe you're mad at me. They say, well, hey man, I'm just telling you the truth, right? What, what would you want me to go out there and die because you're, because you're stupid? I don't think so. Right. You shouldn't be here because you're stupid. All right. I said it. Can we move on from here? You do what you have to do to fix yourself and we're going to be ready to go for when you're, when you're ready. Right. I, I need to know how you respond when you're with your wife, when you're not with your wife. I don't mean like a sexual way. I mean, I didn't know how it affects you. 
if you have an abusive relationship or you're an abuser, I need to know that. I need to know how you're responding to a combat situation because my life isn't aligned because you're, I can only watch what I watch. I can only see 10% of the battlefield. You and the other eight guys, or actually this corporation would be 36 people, we only see so much what we see. We rely on each other to be able to see the things. I can't have you thinking about something else. So I know. I know how you are. I know who you are. I know what you're about. I know where you want to be. And I think, again, I go back to the sports and go, that's the same thing. When you guys are winning or losing a game, you know if a guy's having a good day or a bad day, you know? So that's what the SEAL teams are. They get you, it gets you to do that. And you got guys that are humble. You know they have physical ability. You have that team ability, uh, which means that I'm also in charge, but I'm also one of the guys that can step back and let somebody else run it. And most people don't know how to do that. They don't know how to let somebody who's in charge run it. And then as the person in charge, step back and let somebody else run it, right? They, that understands it better than you do. And that's the beauty of the SEAL teams is that I can be the guy in charge or I don't have to be the guy in charge. But the expectation of everybody in the room is the same. I don't change the dynamic just because I'm in charge now. Like, oh, we're going to do it my way now because I'm in charge. Like what we were doing before and because we come from the same place, how are we going to do it now? Because I, as a mentor or a motivator or the person that's in charge, my job is to keep the team together. My job is to provide inspiration, direction, guidance, and hope. And that's for everything we do. The next guy is the same thing. Because we all know our jobs. But we want to know if you have our, our backs 100%. If you have our backs, we can be successful. If you don't have our backs, distrust, doubt, um, subversiveness, that's when all these negative things come into play. So Hell Week puts everybody on the same page. Hell Week allows us to move forward as, as a team and not as individuals within any, any framework we, we operate in. And then it sounds like Hell Week is a, a really good example of going through something absolutely crazy, painful, just hard to comprehend of, of how difficult it is and then walking out ahead and being a better person because of that. How do you teach that to a 16, 17, 18 year old where, you know, it's very easy to say, turn your obstacles into your advantage and turn what you have going on at home, use that as fuel. But how do you really I mean, everyone's different, but how do you communicate that in a, an effective way for a for a young person to really grasp and understand what needs to happen for them to be like, okay, I know what I'm going through right now is extremely difficult, but I can walk out better because of it. Wow, that's a big question. And basically, what I do or what I've done in the past is uh, you you got you need them for 48 to 72 hours. Because no matter what you teach them, um, and the two hours of practice, they got eight hours of, of everybody else influencing their, you know, what they're going to do. And I know you guys got CIF rules and all sorts of stuff that you deal with, but the, the teams I work with in California, I've, I've always told the coaches when I work with them, it's like, I can get them on the same page, but I need, I need them for a while. I need them, I need them to not know when it's going to be over. I need permission to not break them, but to break the clock. And what I mean by break the clock is like, okay, practice is from five to seven, right? So at about 6.30 or six o'clock for some of them, they're already thinking about what they're gonna do next. So I can't, I can get them to listen to me, but I can't get them to hear me. But if they don't know when the practice is gonna be over or the day is gonna be over, I can get them to, to absorb what I'm telling them. 
And that's why you need the additional time with them. And then you can get it to sink in by a couple of physical evolutions. And it's how you talk to them. And every kid's different, of course, but the group and the dynamic and getting them to be accountable to one another kind of works in your favor because then you got to get them to, to trust one another. You got to get them to kind of bind to each other. And then you set up the value system. These are our value systems. Then it's just part of who we are as coaches and mentors is to institute what they call the commander's intent. The commander's intent is that this is what we're going to do for the year 2019, and these are the things we're going to follow. And then it's up to the students or it's up to the, you know, the athletes to, to kind of maintain that relationship with one another and those values that you actually put out. Um, I was going to tell you, I'm looking for it now, is um, I, and I don't know, I think this is when I did it, this is a 2013 preseason Bruins training with Navy SEALs. Coach um, Mora, I think that's his name. Mora. Coach Mora was the head yeah, of yeah. yeah, he was he was in charge of uh, UCLA, and um, one of my clients would say he was an alma mater for uh, UCLA. He said, hey, you need to talk to the team. They got a bunch of knuckleheads. And I went to the signing. You know, they basically they draft not drafted, but they brought all the kids in, and I I sitting up in the stands. And at this time, I was working with corporate corporations a lot, and I I said, well. I told him, I said, you know, those kids don't respect anything. Uh, the ones that are, they, you know, from all over the country and more one of these great athletes and very good kids. But my problem with it was that they weren't um, focused on, on doing the training program that, that I wanted them to do. And that was the, the bad thing. So I said more, I said, Hey, I need them. I need them for three, for three days, huh. 105 football players. I need it for three days because I got to break some of the stuff that you guys have been doing wrong with them. I had them and I, I, I basically, my biggest problem was not so much the football team, it was actually the coaches because the coaches had a certain relationship with them. And I'm like, I don't, look, I just got to tell me they're, they, they owe me the answer to the question I gave them. I don't, you know, I don't, I don't need you to work with me. I just need you to kind of watch what we're doing. I'm going to hold them accountable for everything. I, I know that you, I know the parents sent you out here and, she sent the kids to you, and but I don't. I don't owe anything to the parents. I owe everything to to these guys. Where I need to get them? I need to figure out who they are as a football team. And at the, at the end of that, um, after the, the days, I'm looking for the article that was written on them. But uh, the day after we got done training them, they showed up at the camp, and the uh, all the newspapers were, you know, the UCLA football team looks like a football team one day, first day of training. It was it was great, and for us it was, and then. The biggest thing was, is uh, Coach Morrow says, well, I want a winning season from him. I say, well, nothing I do is going to give them a winning season in, you know, three weeks. That's going to come from, that's going to come from you and the plays you choose and all that other stuff. But they wound up winning six games in a row. And then I went to their last game and it was, uh, it was amazing. The game was amazing. I was pretty happy with it. But. And then uh, what, what were the coaches doing that you said that was well, causing some of the problems? Yeah, well, you know, the coaching staff is basically they 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 uh, you know they have a relationship with with the guys like they want to be the friends of of the players. You know, they want to play the music and kind of and then you're trying to get them because they're you know these kids can play anywhere. They want to try to hold. And I, I don't want to say anything bad about them, but it's like they want to kind of hold them to close to friendship as opposed to close to expectations. Right? This is what I want from you this is what you're going to perform for me or I can afford to let you go play someplace else. If the students or candidates or whatever, they think they can go play someplace else, 
then let them play someplace else because what they do is they subvert the choices and decisions that you make in order for the team. They're thinking about themselves and the group they can have around them. They're not thinking about what the team can do, what the possibilities of what the team is going to be able to accomplish. They think about the individual. The only time you think about the individual is when you're the team captain and you have to make choices on the team and what they're going to do. I trained with a Loyola high school football team probably um, about, about, about a month and a, about three months ago, maybe two and a half months ago. And it was basically the same thing. They're a great school, great team. And the coach says, hey, you can have them for two hours. So I actually need more time than that. Two hours, I'm just getting started at two hours. Um, but we went through this whole thing with, and I'm not passing anything, you know, anything secret from there, what they do. But it's like, how much time are you going to give me to find out who the team leader is? You know, I need, I need more time to figure out who your natural leaders are, who people follow, who the subversive guys are, and get them all on the same page. And two hours is not enough time for that. You need, you need, you need about four and five, five, four and a half, five hours for that. And I said, the coach, I need to tell them that they're going to be with me all day. I need them to let me know or to tell me who the guys are in charge of their team. That's what I need. I don't need you to tell me. I need to know organically who are the leaders of your team. I said, you, you're going to be surprised at who, who, who pops out. And so about halfway through the training, he's like, well, how can we not use our quarterback? He's the guy in charge. And I said, well, he hasn't shown me he wants to be in charge of the team. Said he's he's letting everybody else suffer because of him, and we're gonna we're gonna crank it up a little bit until he takes charge. And he said, "Well, what do you mean by that?" I said, "We're gonna we're gonna punish them because we're looking for the guy that we want somebody to take charge and make the decisions." Right now, I'm talking to freshmen who who feel that they want to be in charge and they don't know how to be in charge or they don't have the structure behind it. And I'm letting them know this is a senior this is a serious this is serious business that we're gonna hold them accountable. And you know, of course, you know, freshmen are making mistakes; they don't know what to do and you know, the senior guys don't respect them. And we have control over it. Don't, don't think it's like a mayhem out there. But um, this guy comes up, he goes, I'll take charge. And I go, who are you? He goes, I'm the quarterback. I go, so what does that mean? He goes, well, I'm the one that's supposed to be in charge of the team. I go, where you been for the last two hours? He said, well, I didn't know I was supposed to come up here. I go, it's your team, right? He goes, yeah. I go, so what to deal with? And I said, talking, you know, I talked to him while I was punishing him, actually. <laughs> like, so what makes you think you should be in charge? Uh, he's like because uh, they like me and I go well that's no reason to be in charge I say are you going to leave these guys because I don't think they like me and I go why don't they like you because I was all about myself last year I said what makes last year different than this year huh. you know you, you had a summer break <laughs> he's, he's like no I go I'll tell you what I want you to go over in the corner over there because we've been running the team without you I don't need you what I need you to do I need you to write a letter to the team and tell the team what you're going to do from this year that you didn't do last year that's what I want to hear. I want to hear from you, from your voice, what you did last year that makes them know that it's different, that you're going to be different this year. And then when you're ready, you let me know. We'll talk to the team together. So he goes over there. He's a smart kid. He comes back about 25, 30 minutes later, feeling guilty because the guys are still working out. I said, hey, so what's going on? He goes, I got my letter done. I said, all right, we're going to go ahead and work out now. So we finish up our workout, another another hour and a half. I get done with the, get done with the day and the event. I think he thinks I forgot about it. I bring him in front of the entire group and I go, hey, do your letter thing. <laughs> He's like, what? Do your letter thing. Tell, yeah. tell him what you were last year. And uh, I got to tell you, it was uh, it was kind of emotional because he really like threw it out there about how bad he was the year before. And I was like, I didn't see that in that kid. I didn't know he was like that selfish, you know, all about me kid. But um uh, they, they, at the end, they were like, yeah, thank you. We really appreciate that. And we are going to work hard for you as a quarterback of the team. We'll work hard, hard with you and for you. Um, but it takes a while to get them there. It takes a while to get everybody 
on the same page and understanding their value on the team. Now, I, I completely believe in the mentorship. I completely believe in if you're a new guy, you got to do the things that make you an old guy. I, I believe in giving back. And everybody has to understand that if you're the best player of the team, what are you doing to make everybody else that good? Right? You can't just like, hey, I'm just getting my play time because I'm going to go to university. Yeah, but you know, it's called a football team for a reason. You can get your yardage up and you get your, you know, get your catches and you're, you know, but you're, but you're one player, right? And at some point, the team's going to turn on you. And then you're not going to win any games. Like, oh, you guys are not letting me win. It's like, well, it's not your team. It's our team. And you can inspire people as a player, a single player to be great, but you can't be a great player by yourself. Right? Kobe Bryant was an unbelievable player, but he really didn't inspire the other guys on the team to be as good as they could be. I know there's some dispute about that, but really, if you're a great player, you, you know, you need to spend the time with your guys. If you're working out by yourself and you're not, you're not bringing the guys over to your house, or you're, they don't know who you are, if you got your own business going on, there's no way you can inspire your team to be as good as they can be. Because the team doesn't know that. I believe that any team you're going to be on, this is a SEAL team as well, any team that you're a part of, you need to spend time with each other, not just on the field, but off the field. And I don't mean getting in trouble, getting drunk and dating girls. I mean that you need to know each other, like camping and hiking, away from everything that where you're relying on each other. I think, you know, uh, if you took your defensive line out for the day and they, 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 they're going to do a, a hike, and then you took the, the running backs and the receivers and all that, they went one way, and then you met in the middle at the end of the day. You had a big campfire thing. That, that's a lot. Yeah, the first couple of hours are going to suck because they're going to be crying and whining. And, you know, it's like, they always do. Right. But after a couple of hours, it's like, what else are you going to do? You're going to complain, complain and whine for three or four hours. And then I tell people, and that's the same complaining and whining they do in the game. Hmm. It doesn't change. They need to deal with it. They need to be able to fix it. They need to be a part of the, the solution, not the problem. Anybody can whine. Right. But what are you doing to get us to where we need to be? And navigation does that out in the woods. You know, they don't know where they're at. They go, oh, this sucks. Oh, coach, why are we out here? Well, you are here because we're going to learn about each other. And we already know that you're wider. We have 300 yards in this thing. <laughs> so, so it's a hot day somewhere. And we're, you're complaining about being hot and you want to drink water all the time. Hey, come on, man. You know you drink a gallon of water. You got to carry it out in the field. When you carry a gallon of water in the field, you're going to get sick. You know, the best place for water is inside your gut. I get that. But you can't drink too much of it because you're hot. You got to be able to play when it's hot. You got to be able to survive when it's hot. Survive when it's cold. When it's wet. You should thrive in, in, in horrible conditions. If you're trying to not let the rain hit your back and there's rain outside, you're not you're not focusing on the game. You're not part of the problem. Let me give you one thing real quick, because I'm sorry I'm going off on these little tangents, but uh, I love this stuff talking about how to fix kids and working with kids. And I think that the the brightness of the future if led properly. But um, if they're not focusing on the game, and, and I give you an example, I was watching the game this weekend. I love going to watch my son's game. Not so much watching him play, but watching all the other players. I'm, I'm not one of those parents that sits back and goes, oh, you did a great job. You know, I, I tell him you did a great job afterwards. I'm, I tell him I'm not in the stands the route you want. I'm, I'm, not, I'm in the stands to watch you play. Hmm. Um, and, I, and I enjoy watching you play. And uh, see, critique me, tell me what you did wrong. They critique me and tell me what you think you did wrong. What, what could you have done better? And some days he goes, he goes, Dad, I gave it everything I got. Some days he goes, I just was not up to play. And we go, why is that? Well, I didn't hydrate. Oh, you know, that's. That what happens when you need to hydrate the night before. Exactly. So why are we having this conversation? And I'm not that cruel to my son. 
but I am I am pretty I'm pretty you know like if we're having a bad day you're I'm having a, you're having a bad day because of this. But I was telling my son I said you know the difference between a really good team and a really bad team is the the, the players on the sidelines is we as viewers can see things happening before the guys on the on the field can see them happening. It's kind of how we develop. So so my coaches are so good at what they do. They can see the play developing and what they need to do next. But so do the fans. If you're a player and you don't know what's going on because you're sitting on the sideline and enjoying your your five-minute break, then how can you keep pace with the game and what direction it's going in, the players and the other players and what they're doing? And And here's the thing, the symbiotic relationship of the other team and what they're doing to your team. You can turn the tide, and you know this, you can turn the tide of a game with one um, play that somebody makes that gets your team riled up and it crushes the energy and excitement of the other team. I always tell my son that, that I said, the one thing that your team could do that you never do because the coaches don't want to do it is crush the other team before you even get in the water. And I believe that in any sport that if you can somehow master the, the, the mental discipline to be all business when you get out there, it's really hard for people to beat you if you've already mentally beat the other team and you don't make mistakes. And you only make mistakes because you're not paying attention. You know, you're not focusing on what you want to be able to get done. You're thinking about your headphones. You're thinking about your, you know, the shoes you're wearing and, you know, all this other crap that's going on. You should be thinking about the win, thinking about how you're going to work together, thinking about catching the ball, moving the ball, looking at the guy. And, and I'm not saying threatening the other team, but you need to have that confidence you walk out in the field. And if you don't have that, there's no way you're going to be successful. And the SEAL teams, if we don't have the confidence when we go into a mission, there's no way we're going to be successful. Because you know who has a say in it? The other guy. Mm. Yeah, I just did a, a podcast episode that kind of dissected the 25-year dynasty of the, the Miami Hurricanes yeah. from like 1983 to like 2003. And they were a real real good example of of really having the game won before the kickoff even happened you know other teams were just right. were scared of them there's there once you go into it a little bit you get in the weeds there was this perception that all these guys they're you know they were cocky they were arrogant they're arrogant but that they, they were confident because of how hard they pushed each other in training and how prepared they yeah. were to go out and that's yeah. what that's what why they exuded such confidence and most times when they go out other teams just didn't want any part of it yeah you, you know and if you get one guy that doesn't want to do it it affects the rest of the team one of the things i love about football is that for teams to really maximize their potential there has to be leaders on the field the the, the players themselves i think more than more than yeah. any other sport and uh, at Casamont, we have had a very, we have a very hard time developing leaders on on the field um because a lot of times when guys will say something positive immediately that ghetto claw that you're talking about will yeah. <laughs> they they will get that uh very quickly and 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 the reason i feel that that they have a hard time fighting back against that is because i think subconsciously they know that they're not consistent enough with with their behavior yeah. But I'm wondering what what would be like three things that you would say are really important that that a 17-year-old football player would need to do to to gain credibility and so he could so he could lead with his team. 
Oh, let me let me give you this because I just I'm getting ready to do a program this weekend, and I just covered that with the I put it on the T-shirt actually. <laughs> um, and I'll tell you why. Um, they're training with a fraternity this weekend, and they have some issues. But um, I just wrote this these three three words on the T-shirt uh, for them to remember while we're training them. Um, because I, I told the guys I was working with, I said, well, I just want them to see it the whole time. I want them to see these words uh, while we're training. I thought they were really good. Let me pull this up real quick for you. So I'm a firm believer in three, right? I believe in three. I think you're, you're a coach. It's, it's simple. Two is not enough. Four is too many. But three things you can remember. I normally say inspiration, direction, guide. I hope that's four. I use it for corporations. But a lot of kids don't get the direction. They don't get the inspiration. and in guidance, and they, well, I don't understand hope. You, know, you say hope is something somebody gives you. That's what happens. You know, I hope I get that job. But you're waiting for somebody else to tell you. But the three things: uh, courage, candor, and respect. Mm. Courage to say the right thing when you need to say it. Candor to be truthful with people, and then then the respect: respect their opinions and respect what they're trying to do for the team. So, courage, candor, and respect. Candor is all about truth. Being truthful. And not being subversive. Uh, a lot of people want to be subversive. They want to tell you stuff that because they, they want to hurt your feelings. But that's not candor. Candor is just being honest with people. But courage to stand up for other people. Courage to say the right things. Courage to take on on the negative things that they say to you without going, you know, oh, I can't believe you, man, that you said that about me. Which we get away from the football field. And courage to be, do right. And, 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 and more importantly, courage to stand up with your teammate. You know, it's even if the guy's not consistent, he's consistent enough to say something, but not every day. But then you're dealing with, but if a kid's not, he's not consistent with it every day, he's not showing up on time. It's just a conversation. And what I would do is I would, you know, I like I like peer pressure. It's like, come on, man, tell everybody why you why why do you believe that? And and then have the guy say, why don't you believe him? It's it's one of those truthful moments. And I've done this with teams before in the past. It's like. But you don't want him to be team leader. And they go, no, we don't like him. I say, does he know that? No. I say, well, well, we don't have him talk to him because we, he needs to know. Maybe he thinks he's doing what he's doing is right. And because he doesn't have any input, he has no idea you guys feel this way about it. And that's the thing. It's having that, being able to be candor, have the candor enough to talk to people and say, hey, we don't like you because we think that you're always lying to us and you're always late and you're only doing this because you got good game time. It's like, okay. Okay, I'm going to work it. I want you to hold me accountable for that. I want you to tell me when I'm doing something wrong. Because, you know, if you say, hey, he's always late. Well, who's going to be with him until he's not late? Because you got to give him a buddy, right? Say, hey, you got to have a swim buddy or a battle buddy or a team buddy or whatever you want to call it. But you got to have somebody that's with you all the time. Hey, Johnson, you're going to be with Smith until you guys show up on time. And if he shows up late, everybody's going to leave the rest they he gets there. There has to be a reason why if he's late, say he's late. There has to be something that's a punishment that he, that he feels that he knows that it's, 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 that's how they feel. But if he doesn't know, he probably doesn't know. It, it can't be when he says something, they go, oh, you're inconsistent. It's like, well, you know, they're just saying that because you want to be in charge. And there's a couple of things that go along with it. But basically, I would, um, I would have, if he's a leader, a natural leader, you know the difference between the two. It's like, if he's a natural leader, I would have, I'd have a sit-down talk with him, a long talk where, and I know we say, look, an eye to eye with an individual, that's what you're supposed to do to see if they're telling you the truth. But when you're trying to get a kid to kind of talk to you, sometimes our glares and our stares are a little bit too much for them. Hmm. And uh, you, you don't want them to look, look at you for, just for approval. You don't want them to kind of subconsciously say, you know, they're talking and they're just like, I'm not going to say at the coach because I don't want to get mad at me. 
Uh, it's no no different than a therapist, uh, you know, talking. I'm not going to tell you to have some kid lay down and look at the ceiling and tell me what your problems are. It's like, well, come in and talk to me and, and let's uh, let's have a conversation. Just, you know, talk. Just just talk and uh, tell me what's going on. Okay, that's good. You know, no input. No, just like, okay, I got it. See what I see where I can help you. All right, and then uh, I want you to talk to the team. What? I want you to talk to the team. I want you to tell the team what the problems are. And then I want you to take the throne and then hold them accountable for it. Hold them accountable. Physically hold them accountable, mentally hold them accountable. You know, there's there's all sorts of, of methods and, and, and ways of doing that. I, I do it with shirts as well sometimes. I'll, um, a, a top performer, I'll put them in like a, a pink shirt <laughs> <laughs> during the training event because, you know, it's like I'm tired of this kid. They're like, uh, they're saying, why, why do I have to wear that shirt? Because you don't shut up. I need you to shut up. I need you to, I need you to listen. And you don't want to listen. Well, I don't want to wear, I want to wear the brown shirts. Then no, you're not going to wear, you're going to wear the pink shirts. Or you can leave. And then you wear the pink shirt. Everybody's giving in crap. And after a while, it's like, well, you know, you want, you know, you can get out of the pink shirt, work harder. Oh, okay. Nine times out of 10, they answer the call. I've never had anybody walk off and go, I, I'm, I'm not, I'm not doing that. I'm not doing that at all. Go, okay. You want to be on the team? You got to make some sacrifices. And then how do you demonstrate? So showing respect to each other is something that we we that we face every day yeah. and i guess it, it comes back with with us and this of like you know clowning and, and joking is is something that our guys love to do guys in the inner city love to do but at the same time yeah. what there's there needs there's a time for that and then there's a time where it's like you need to respect like this guy's calling out he want he wants your support and right. How would you teach the importance of respect? See, that's one of those things from the hood that's, um, you know, it comes from family. Mm. Um, You're going to have to educate them because that's stuff that your your fathers and mothers would teach you growing up about, you know, respect to other people. Um, You know, they always, I call my my son's guys, uh, kids, they they call it goofy. They want to goof on the guys all the time because, you know, he said something stupid. Let's all make fun of him. Um, it, it's a sign of, um, I wouldn't say it's a sign of respect. I think it's a sign of, um, it's kind of coming back to the call that you're saying something that I couldn't say and I'm going to make fun of you about it. It's a defense mechanism hmm. for, for most kids is that, uh, and it's how you handle it really. It's, you know, you can, okay, everybody shut up. And, but I, those are one of those times where you, there's a speech involved and then there's a physical, uh, uh, element that goes along with it. Let me, let me give you an example. John and I, John is a guy who works with me, uh, John Pops. And we train, um, uh, what are they called? Uh, historically black colleges, right? HSBs. Mm-hmm. And, uh, yeah, there's always a discipline problem at, a UCA, uh, at the schools. But we roll in there and, um, we tend to not be their friends and, um, we tend not to be, we tend to hold the, hold the torch to them. We find out who the jokesters are and we, we tend to hammer them. Um, and I, I think for us, it works because they don't know us. It's like uh, your kids will listen to other people before they listen to you. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's kind of their relationship. Somebody comes in there and they listen to them differently, even though you're saying the same thing. I said, but they hear from me all the time. Like my son, here's just here's stuff from me all the time. So it's, I always tell them, I said, it's hard for me to talk to you because I've talked to you casually. I talk to you in the professional way. 
we do our events together, I always have the guy, my guys work with him. And, he, and he's like, well, I heard this from, you know, from uh, this guy. And I'm like, I said that to you like two weeks ago. <laughs> you know? <laughs> yeah. So, 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 but to get them on the right path, it's always good to have somebody come in. That's why I think guest, guest speakers are good. I think that not other coaches, but I guess some people coming in and talking to them. But not, but here's the thing, you got to be careful because some people want to come in and they want to appeal to them and say, you know, you should do this because of blah, blah, blah. It's like, no, hold them to a standard. I understand your plight and how bad, how bad your situation is. Yeah. Yeah. And that means nothing. That's not putting money in my pocket. That's not putting food on my table. That's not helping with my grades. That's not helping us win. You know what helps us win? Is you being honest with me. You're being truthful with me. You think I'm a great football team? Great. You think I suck? Great. I'm going to work towards, if you, think I, if you think I suck, how can I become better? How do I become a better team? Parents are, uh, are a part of that problem as well. If some parents are looking to their kids to be in the NFL and making, you know, $60 million a year, and they, they drive them to practice, they buy them the latest stuff, because they know that's their money box, and they think this kid's going to make a lot of money. That's a lot of pressure on a, on a kid. There's a conversation that needs to be had with the parent, because the parent are not going to listen to you. You know, they they tend to see what they see and want what they want. And, you know, I'll take my kids someplace else. So there's a balance that goes along with that. But I would recommend, I mean, I'd be willing to come and talk to your team if you want. Uh, where are you guys located? Bay Area, Oakland. Oh, oh, really? Yeah, if we can work out something one day, maybe not now, I mean, not tomorrow, but you want to work out something, I'll come up there and talk to your team. And, <laughs> that would be awesome. Training. Yeah, I mean, I, I mean, John and myself will come there maybe in the off season. Sure. Because I know you guys like to training, say in the off season, say, hey, this is the guy in 2019, and, and we can get by the CIS stuff. Uh, I come up and work out with them, talk to them. I, I need a day, at least a day with them. Um, like on a weekend, we're going to have a special thing on the weekend, and you provide water for them, and we'll buy Gatorade. Stuff, and uh, we'll just work with them. I mean, it, it would be good just to talk to them and say, hey, where are you guys at? How are you making things happen? And they don't have to be padded up. We can just just need them for just a day to work with them, kind of have them understand things and what they can do in the future. I mean, we got kids we work with that are in the NFL now. You know, not because we're like, oh, we train guys to go to the NFL. I mean, they've gone through programs we've had, and they've ended up in the NFL. So we know what we do actually works. I'm not saying I'm not trying to sell you anything. I'll just come up there and work with the kids because I think it's great. That's a great opportunity for one of these kids. You know, five years from now, and go, hey, I talked. My coach hooked me up with these guys, and coach, you know, we did all these things. And, uh, and, and now I'm here. I'm grateful, and I want to give back to my community. That's that to me means a lot. That's inspiring, Mr. Royal. One hundred percent. Take you take you up on that this off season. Uh, I want. I don't want to take too much of your time, sir. So I want. I want to give you some rapid fire questions here at the end, and sure. if you could do me the courtesy yeah. and only answer in one one word or one sentence. Oh, whew. okay. <laughs> <laughs> Best team building activity you have led or participated in. Log PT. What are you most proud of in your life up to this point? Raising my kids. When you die, how do you want to be remembered? I don't want to be remembered. What are the three most important values, character traits that you try and live by? Honesty, integrity, and selflessness. Who is the most interesting person you have ever met in your life? Matt. Other than me, right? <laughs> no, yeah, that works. What personal limits are you currently stretching? Personal limits, fitness, fitness. And I'm, I'm 56 now, so working out is a little difficult. And what is the biggest life lesson you have learned in the last six months? 
resilience. Awesome. And Mr. Roy, you do not have to uh, answer this in, in one word or one sentence, but uh, last question, what is one piece of advice you would give to a 17-year-old high schooler who comes from absolutely nothing yet has high ambitions to leave a major impact on the world? Oh, that's interesting. You know, we talked about it earlier. I would tell the kid, you know, what, you know where he is now, is he in a good place now? It's just, yes. What would you tell yourself five years ago? As in how you got to where you are now. And you should think about where you are five years from, from 17 uh, until 22 and say, what would you, if you're 22, what would you tell your 17 year old self? And then make that happen. Because you, you, you have to be able to look into the future and see what you can be because you've been at the bottom. Only thing left is the top. Mm, so good. And Mr. Roy, for the people listening, uh, where is the best way for people to find out more about you and what you're doing and connect with you uh, online and, and through social media if you're on there? I'm not a big social media guy, but I am I'm developing a website. But the best way to get a hold of me right now is just go to my website. Um, I have old information up there because, uh, because of kind of what I do. I'm going to start a, uh, a blog and a lot of stuff later, but uh, I'll post all that stuff on my website. So go to www.sot-g.com. So good. Uh, it's been an absolute honor having you on. And then what I'm thinking just right off the bat here is we can uh, – we get the honor of having you and a couple of your guys come up here and, and work out our guys in the off season. And maybe we could do this again as a kind of a recap and kind of talk about yeah. what went well and uh, what they got from it. And uh, excited to have you back on. I lo would love to do it, coach. Just keep me in mind. Let me know when I can do it. Sounds good. I appreciate you, Mr. Roy. Thanks, sir. All right. Thank you. Bye.